Okay, well, yeah, happy um, almost 4th of July. It is the, man, om the second, beginning of the second half of the year. That's, I don't know why to me it seems like it's gone so fast. There's like an echo um, coming from this phone right here. Is it possible to turn the volume off on this phone? Like hearing myself back at me. Thank you. Yeah, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael, and excited to be able to share with us today. I think the slides are coming up, but we are in this current mini-series through the Great Commission. If you're here last week, Pastor Allen, he walked us through the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he talked about how this is like the central purpose, the central mission of our church today. And today, I will be continuing part two of this um, little series, specifically thinking about personal application. What does it look like to live this out in our everyday context today, in our modern context? And um, yeah, that's the, that's the heading there, Reviewing the Great Commission, A Call for Discipleship Culture in Our Church, Part 2, Part 2. And I'm sure there's a lot that someone could say about what it looks like to live out the Great Commission. Today, my goal is just to get us started, to say one thing or so about how each of us can take one step to live out the Great Commission. The passage comes from Acts chapter 19, 1 to 10. So if you have a Bible or an app, um, you can open it up and read with us. I'll share some background on why I chose this passage First, some of you may know this guy up here, Mike McQuitty. Used to Pastor Mike used to preach here um, regularly at, at Grace Life. I have a photo there on the on the side of him, and and also a photo I think I think a couple of decades ago when he was doing ministry in upstate New York. And I came across this passage. You know, it's not one that's studied a lot or looked upon by a lot of people. But I came across when I actually read his um, Doctor of Ministry thesis at, at seminary. He wrote a couple of decades back. We actually ended up going to the same. Um, seminary, now called Gateway Seminary, and he, he builds his thesis on this uh, training program for college students up in New York, central New York, and he goes through this passage, Acts 19, so I just want to give him some credit. I know a lot of you guys know him about where this comes from, um, but a little bit about the passage. In Acts 19, we find Paul on his third missionary journey. What that means is Paul has been doing ministry or living out the Great Commission for about two decades now throughout um, different areas of the Greco-Roman world. And on this third missionary journey, this is his last missionary journey, he ends up in the city of Ephesus. And it's hard to see, but I have it circled there in yellow. It is right in the middle of the Greco-Roman world, and it's a port city, a trade city. So people from all over the world would come here to do business and to trade. So as you can imagine, it's this multicultural, multi-ethnic city, and it also has this plurality of different religions. So as you can imagine, anyone who might claim to have like the only God or the absolute truth would likely face some sort of social pressure, maybe even persecution. And in many ways, there's a lot that can be compared between the city of Ephesus and our context today, 21st century America. In prophesying, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that's modern day Turkey, that's about 200,000 people at the time, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your written word for these um, countless examples, beautiful examples of 
people who, who lived out your great commission, God, would you teach us today? Man, would you remind us, God, that, that we are yours, that you say in your great commission, you are with us wherever we go. So would you be with us today, God? And would you teach us what it looks like to take one step toward living out your great commission? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the way I have this organized is I have five words that I think will help us think about what it looks like to build a discipleship culture in our church, but also in our own individual lives. What does it look like for each of us to take one step toward pursuing the Great Commission? And the first word is missional, that discipleship is missional. If we read in verse one, it says, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus, and immediately there he found some disciples. And the author seems to make it clear to us that wherever Paul went, he found people to disciple. He found people to disciple. And if you read any commentary on this passage, almost every commentator will argue over one thing. Were these disciples saved? You know, on one hand, they, it seems that they believed that they've been baptized. But on another hand, some argue they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. They don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. So there's this like debate that goes back and forth. Were these people saved or not saved? You know, I think for myself and and what this author, to me, is the point we can take from it is it's, it's inconclusive. The author didn't make it clear. And what that means to me is that for Paul, a person's salvation status, you know, whether they're a Christian or not, it wasn't a criteria of which he needed for him to disciple them. That wherever he went, whoever they were, he found people to disciple. You know, I think in our culture, we're so often focused on putting people into either like a saved category or a not saved category that we limit the idea of who can undergo discipleship. When we think about discipleship, we think about like this program of the church, you know, maybe a class that you sit in to attend, to learn about what it looks like to follow Jesus better. But for Paul, it was anywhere and everywhere, wherever he went, he found people to disciple. The Great Commission, as Alan walked us through, says, go therefore and make disciples. And that word go, if you look at the tense in Greek, it actually has the same tense as other words like in that, in that passage, like baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them to obey all that I command you. That another translation of that word go could be translated going, as you are going, make disciples. In other words, as you are going, wherever you are, whoever you are with, you know, discipleship ought to be happening. It is a new missional framework that broadens, I think, our definition of what discipleship is. You know, I have a little example here. Um, recently, our family, a couple of weeks ago, we took a trip up to the Amish farmlands of Pennsylvania. I don't know if anyone's been there. Um, to me, it was awesome. We got to like feed goats and milk cows and hold baby pigs. And like, you can see my little baby Isaac, they're feeding a cow, some, some water or milk or something. And for me, it was awesome. I'd highly recommend it for my wife, Lonnie. It was a confirmation that she loves suburbia, that she would never go and live in a rural country. But one thing that you do notice out there is there is a ton of farmland. It is, it's huge. You're driving and all you see is farmland. And, and sometimes you see like animals like coming out on the road, right near the road. And it's pretty awesome. But um, there's this illustration. It comes from a field called social set theory um, about what it looks like to organize a church, what it looks like to organize a discipleship culture. And, and it's a farming illustration. It says for, for farmers out in these rural areas, there are two ways often to keep your livestock from wandering off. One is to build a fence around your property, around your land, keep your animals in, keep other animals out. 
Um, but the illustration comes from, from Australia, like the desert, barren land of Australia. And for some farmers, when, when your land is too large, it's just infeasible to build a fence that big. So the other way is to dig a well, to find this precious supply of water that any animal will come, that your animals will come and drink from the well. And it is assumed that they won't wander too far from the water source. And this is an illustration of two ways, again, to think about what a discipleship culture could look like. The fence is an example of what's called a bounded faith or a bounded set. You're either in or you're out. You're either a Christian pursuing discipleship or you're a non-Christian. And it asks the question, do you believe the same way I believe? Do you believe the same things that I believe? Whereas the well is this example of what's called a centered faith or a centered set. And it asks the question, are you also looking for water? Are you headed in the same direction I am? Do you desire to come to learn with me? That anyone who may be headed toward the well, whether they know it or not, whether Christian or not, is welcomed into the process of discipleship. You know, it broadens this definition of what discipleship ought to be. This command to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey all that I command you. Um, it makes it broad. And I have it, I have it written here. Discipleship is every day and in every way, helping people to engage their own personal exploration of faith and take one step closer to Christ. That whether you're a Christian for 20 years or you're, you're not even a Christian yet, you can be on this process of taking one step closer to Christ, engaging your own personal exploration of faith. You know, what does that mean in our context today? What does that mean for us? I think it means we surely ought to have some sort of discipleship relationships with other Christians who are maturing in our faith toward Christ, who are growing together. And I think, as Alan mentioned, we plan to offer something like a class, like a discipleship class for, for you to be in that sort of setting. But I think what it also ought to mean is we also ought to have discipleship relationships with some of the everyday people in our lives, people who maybe don't follow Jesus. And we're pointing them to Jesus by sharing in word and indeed why we orient our lives around this well, around this source, Jesus, helping them to engage in their own personal exploration of faith. You know, that is discipleship as missional. And I think to keep this as practical as possible, I have a question for everyone to think about um, as we go through this, this teaching today. And the question is who? You know, for yourself, who are one or two people in your life? You know, Christian or not, who you may already have a relationship with, who may want to engage in their own personal exploration of faith, or who may you want to help do so in your life around you. You know, my prayer is, is you would like zone me out right now and listen to God, listen to God, who may he be putting on your heart right now? Who in your life is looking for water? Who might this person be? You know, maybe jot that person's name down or, or keep it in your head. You know, as I've been reflecting and thinking about this, uh, three, three people came to my mind for myself. And I'll share it as, a, as an example. One is um, we've been getting to know like this neighbor, a couple, a couple in our neighborhood um, who are not Christian. And we're just starting to get to know them. But I think God put them on my mind. I think recently I've been reconnecting with this, this good friend from high school who lives in a different city. And God's been putting them on my mind um, as someone who, who likely I think I'd want to help engage in their personal exploration of faith. And I think about a family member who isn't Christian. These are three people for me, but I ask, what is, who's that one person for you? And hold that person. We're going we're gonna to come back to that person and kind of use this as an exercise throughout the teaching today. But that's the first word, missional. The second is this word, incarnational, that discipleship is incarnational. And if we read starting in verse eight, 
It says, Paul, he enters the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn. They continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So he, Paul, withdrew from them, took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, and all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You know, I think we see something really important here, that his success, this idea that all of Asia heard the gospel, was, not from, was from taking his discipleship relationships from the synagogue, from this church setting, into the secular setting, this hall of Tyrannus. And we know that this word hall, um, in Greek it's skole, another word for like scholar, was a was a lecture hall, was a school where people from all over the world would come to learn and to discuss and to debate with each other. These weren't just like ministry leaders or Christians. These were people from all over the world, all backgrounds and cultures. For Paul, it wasn't about bringing these people to church. It was about, it was about bringing the church to them, that his understanding of discipleship was if God's central way of teaching his people about himself was to incarnate himself in the person of Jesus, was to leave heaven and come to earth for us, then our way of inviting others to learn about, to follow him, likewise should be incarnational, should follow in the way of Jesus. And, you know, I spoke about this in a previous message. I won't belabor the point, but discipleship involves being the church outside of the church setting in the everyday spaces of life. Um, this one theologian, Wendell Berry, he, he says this, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desacred or desecrated places. And we as a church were called to be the church in these places, to make sacred again the spaces that have been desecrated by bringing the love, the blessing of Jesus into these spaces. So, you know, with that person in mind, uh, my question is this, it, it starts with this, you know, what are the spaces? The first thing to ask is what are the everyday secular spaces for you to connect with and engage with this person? You know, what for you is your hall of Tyrannus? You know, for, for Stepping Stone and for the students here, I think it can't be more clear that the modern day equivalent of this hall of Tyrannus is the college campus. And I think it's so neat that whether you know it or not, you're choosing to do ministry, you choose to be a college student, you're living in the footsteps of Paul, following his example in the dorm rooms, in the, in the classrooms, in the, in the dining halls, bringing the church to people where it's needed. But I think for the rest of us, you know, what are these spaces for us? What are the everyday spaces where we can connect with this person? I'll, I'll share a few examples of what I thought about it. It starts simple. For me, for my neighbor, it's, it's taking a walk together. It's maybe inviting them over for a meal. Um, for my friend who lives in a different city, maybe it's a Zoom call with them. Maybe it's planning a trip to go and visit them. For my family member, it's our home. It's maybe reading and discussing a book together. Maybe it's talking about life issues, about our struggles together in the context of our home. What are the spaces, the everyday spaces for you to connect with that person? That's discipleship as incarnational. The third, the third is this word relational. Discipleship is relational. What we see in the text is that Paul is reasoning, and the, the key word here is daily. He's reasoning daily, and this continues for two years. The historians tell us this was the longest time Paul ever spent in one place. That after two decades of ministry of living out the Great Commission, his idea was to stay, to stay for two years, prioritize deep relationships. You know, if you look at his letters, you read any of his epistles, 
Um, they begin and they end. These are like missionary letters that he's writing to churches. They begin and they end not with like a strategy or a tactic or something to do, but with this like deep care, this deep love for specific people there. It, it, he always ends or begins his letters with this encouraging note to specific people, an expression of the high, the deep relationships that he formed. And, you know, when you think about the life of Jesus, he did the same thing. In order to reach the world, he chose to stay where he was, focus on relationships with a handful of individuals. And that was his method. You know, why is this idea of relational discipleship so important? I think it's because of this, that discipleship is not ultimately a matter of knowing certain truths about Jesus, but rather the fruit of having encounters with Jesus, the fruit of having encounters with Jesus, that relational discipleship is not primarily about persuading people to accept certain truths about Jesus, but rather it's about fostering and cultivating opportunities for people to meet Jesus in real time. I have this quote um, from this theologian named Michael Frost. I think he says it really beautifully. He says, when we understand what it is to be truly missional, incarnated deeply within a local community, we find that evangelism is best done slowly, deliberately in the context of a loving community. It takes time and multiple engagement. It requires the unbeliever to observe our lifestyle, to see our demonstrations of the reign of God, to test our values, to observe, to enjoy our hospitality. And it must occur as a communal activity, not only as a solo venture. Unbelievers must see the nature and quality of the embodied gospel in community. And all the while, conversations, questions, discussions, and even debates occur wherein we can verbally express our devotion to the reign of God through Christ. No more billboards, no more television commercials, no more unsolicited mail. If evangelism is like a meal, think of it as being prepared in a slow cooker, served over a long night around a large table. It can't be microwaved. It can't be takeout. You know, that's discipleship as relational. And my question is, what does that look like for you? What does it look like to build a long-term relationship of discipleship? You know, I think about how do we get started with that? Often it's a daunting question. And I have two, two things for us again to think about. One is this idea of bless. What, it, what would it look like for you to bless this person and do good toward this person? Not as a bait and a switch, but because God calls us deeply to love our neighbors. What would it look like for this person to encounter Jesus, encounter a God of generosity, of hospitality, as we extend blessing to this person in a way that is so countercultural, in a way that evokes curiosity by this person, that begs them to ask the question, why do we do the things we do? You know, I think it starts small. What is one small step you can take? These are, these are some examples I came up with as I've been praying about this for my neighbor. It's preparing a meal to eat together. It's blessing their work as teachers, maybe providing them something for their class of students. For my friend who lives in a different city, maybe it's mailing them a card and a gift, letting them know that I care about them. Maybe it's planning a trip together to go to visit them or calling to ask and see how his family and his life is going. You know, for my family member, maybe it's serving them through doing chores, something I, I don't necessarily like. Maybe it's sitting and listening to them. Maybe it's a daily hug in the morning and a word of encouragement for them. What would it look like for you to bless this individual? Secondly, though, um, what would it look like for you to connect them to other disciples? That discipleship happens best in the context of community. The text tells us even that what Paul does is he's at the synagogue and he takes his disciples with him to the hall of Tyrannus. 
what would it look like to introduce this person to other Christians through whom they may also encounter Jesus? You know, this community of blessing. And I have, I have a couple of examples again for my, um, for my cases, for my, for my neighbor. Maybe it's as I've done, invited them to the barbecue tomorrow or to some place where they can connect with others here. For my friend, maybe it's, it's bringing my family or another Christian with me to go and visit them. For my, or for my friend, for my family member, um, maybe it's asking my other Christian siblings to likewise bless them and pray for them and speak to them and send them words of encouragement. You know, what is that for you? What does it look like for you to connect this individual to a community of blessing? Discipleship is this highly relational thing. I think when, when someone who's not a Christian, when they experience an act of generosity, of kindness, of love that is so unexplained, isn't it normal for them to ask why? Why do you do the things they, why do you do the things you do? And isn't it normal, isn't it expected in that case for the Christian to share the real reason why? That the start of sharing our faith is not something that's forced. It's not something that contributes to maybe a stigma that faith should be a private matter, but it begins as a real question into why you do the things you do. Why do you love the way you love, bless the way you bless? You know, it's an opportunity to share about God, the, our God of immense generosity, hospitality, and love. You know, if you read First Peter, it doesn't say that you have to go and share your faith persuasively with everyone. It says, be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks about the hope that is within you. Anyone who asks, what does it look like to share our hope? Not just, not just the gospel, but when they ask, why do you have this job? Why do you have this career? Why do you take care of your kids in this way? Why do you bless people like this? What would it look like to prepare? How would you share your hope in that situation? And that leads us to the fourth point here, that discipleship ought to be conversational. It is conversational. That wherever Paul goes, this idea of conversation ends up happening. It always does. He ends up reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He ends up reasoning daily. That when we do life with people, when we build healthy relationships, when encounters with Jesus are happening, we will have meaningful conversations about the kingdom of God. And I think one thing is we need to learn how to share about these conversations, through these conversations about the king we follow, about how God's story, the gospel story changes our perspective, about how the kingdom of heaven has broken into our lives. And that's my next question, is the gospel. When asked about your life, how would you point people to the God? How, how would you point people to how the gospel has changed your story? You know, how would you point people to how the gospel has changed your story? Um, for me, I have, I have a few examples. Um, maybe it's a richer identity and purpose. I think about why I chose my career. Um, and, and you know, that my life is not determined by my career, by my wealth that in Christ, I find security, I find blessing beyond comparison, a generosity that I experience from God, that I'm able to bless people, I'm able to be generous to people because of the generosity I've experienced. You know, I think about a fuller belonging in relationship. When asked about my family, about my upbringing, you know, it's normal for me to talk about that I come from a family of separated parents. But what I find in the gospel is a belonging not based on what I do, not based on my ability to prove myself or about broken relationships, but what Jesus has done. I find a love that is secure, a love that I can freely extend to others. You know, maybe also I talk about a deeper means to face hardship. When asked about my kids, the birth of my son, when asked about my, my family and, and my wife's, you know, passing of her mother, 
I think about the fact that Jesus has faced the ultimate suffering for me, that only in him do I find the strength, the courage to face these kinds of things. You know, what does it look like for you to share about how the gospel changes your story? That's the next question. That conversational discipleship is about sharing your story through the everyday decisions that you make as the conversation comes up. But I think it's also about thinking about how the gospel fits into their story, not just your story, but how it fits into their story. That when we look at the passage, what we see is Paul gets to know these people. He's asking these questions, you know, were you baptized in the Holy Spirit? And we get to verse four, Paul says this, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. He tells these people, we agree on two things. One, we both like this person, John. We both like who he is. And second, there is this need for repentance that we're both trying to find. John baptized with the baptism of repentance. We both agree on this. He identifies common ground with the people he's discipling. He affirms that these beliefs, they witness to the truth of God by his common grace that he's granted to all people. And he uses it as a bridge to the gospel. And look at what happens next. He says, but John said, believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. That this man, John, who we both respect, who spoke of the need for repentance with which we both agree on, points us to Jesus and the gospel. That if we both believe A, shouldn't we ought to also believe B? And that's his method. And my question is, what are the bridges? What are the areas of overlap this person may have with discipleship of Jesus? You know, what are the shared values, the shared motives, the shared interests, relationships, or desires that align by God's common grace with the gospel? I'll share a few examples here um, from my neighbor who, who works in the school system with, with underprivileged students. It's this care for justice, for equality, for those who they work with, for those in the school system. You know, I'd say something like if we both believe in human dignity, we both believe in justice. Shouldn't we also ought to believe in a God who calls for justice, who identifies with the poor, who bestows value upon every human being? When our world says survival of the fittest, when our world says what's right for me doesn't need to be right for you. If you believe A, shouldn't you also believe B? You know, my, for my friend, he's always thinking about what is his purpose in life? Where am I headed? What am I doing? You know, if we both believe in this idea that there is purpose, shouldn't we also believe in a God who provides purpose, an eternal purpose that will last? When our world says, make up your own meaning in life, something that will definitely eventually end because there is no ultimate purpose. You know, if we both believe, A, that there is purpose, shouldn't we also believe, B? For my family member, I think of other ideas like spirituality, like vulnerability, like the need for community and to belong. How do we use these everyday things that people already believe and use them as bridges to the gospel. How does the gospel fit into their story? And you know, as I asked that, um, it comes, there's, there's one last point and it's that there will also be barriers, but there, there will always be barriers in every person, in every culture to the gospel, that the gospel message will confront a person's worldview. It will confront their doubts, their sin, their assumptions about themselves, and I asked, what are some of the barriers that this person may have with following Jesus? You know, what are the conflicting values or motives or interests or relationships and, and desires that conflict with the gospel? You know, for my neighbors, maybe it's politics. It's seeing how Christians um, act in politics. It's certain laws and things that don't seem to align with what they view, but seem to come from the Bible. 
for my friends. It's the claims of Christianity. It's, is the Bible real? How can I trust this ancient, this ancient book that you're reading? For my family members, it's past negative experiences in the church. You know, what is it for, for this person you are thinking of that's barriers? And, you know, I asked this question, how do we love and acknowledge this person as these barriers come up? How do we invite these people into a space to discover more about what Jesus really has to say? That's what Peter says, you know, give a defense for your faith, but do it gently. Do it with peace. And, you know, this, this one might go beyond the scope of this message, but I don't think we have time to address all the barriers here. But I think if you do have a specific barrier that, you know, you're thinking about that you'd like to address, do bring it up. I think we'd love to incorporate it into a teaching, into a seminar to think about how do we talk about and wrestle through this together. That's conversational, though. Discipleship is conversational. The last word here is transformational. That discipleship is transformational. Verse 5, as he's talking to these disciples, he says this, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You know, at the end of the day, the goal of discipleship is not for someone to just learn something new, or even to have a changed life and be a better person is for them to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. You know, it may not be like these people like speaking in tongues and prophesying off the bat, but I think what it, the goal of discipleship is, is transformation of the Holy Spirit. You know, a power that enters one life, that changes everything about how they think, about how they see the world, how they understand themselves. And I think that is not at all something we can do. At the end of the day, we can have the most persuasive argument. We can have the best strategy, but at the end of the day, it is a work of God's spirit. And that's why my last question is prayer. How can you regularly pray for this person? That if it's a work of the spirit, it starts and it ends here with prayer. Ask God to open this person's heart. Ask him for the right opportunities, for the divine insights into how to love and connect with them. You know, ask this question for yourself, but maybe consider asking it directly to them. How can I pray for you? Prayer is something often that, but for a Christian or a non-Christian is welcomed. That as you get to know their life, as you get to know something that's going on in their life, offer to pray for them. Follow up with the ways you've been praying. Incorporate them into your prayer life. You know, that's the last question. And I think to end, I'll share, share one last story that I think was, was really profound for me. As many of you know, um, back in California, my wife and I, we, we started this college ministry at the Claremont Colleges there, um, very similar to Hopkins, a very prestigious school. And I remember we, we came across this one individual who was not a Christian. And what was amazing to see was that the students in our group, they, they welcomed this guy in and they treated him like a brother, genuine love. They invited him to eat with them, um, to play basketball with them, to study with them. Um, really to be their friend. And at the end of college, this guy would have said, my best friend was the student leader of the college ministry. That's how, that's how much they loved him. And at some point throughout his college life, he started to come to our worship services. He started to you know, sit there. I, I could see he was confused. He didn't know what to do, but he'd listen intently to the message. You know, he'd start to come to these groups we had called exploring Christianity groups, where he could ask hard questions. He could confront his barriers. He could wrestle through these issues. And, and yeah, he was really trying to grow, really trying to understand Christianity through this. And at the end of, at the end of his college time, you know, the semester before he was about to graduate, I, I remember sitting with him and, and I was eating a meal with him and he starts the conversation with me saying, um, I don't believe in Jesus. You know, it's never good when you start a conversation and they say, I don't believe in Jesus. But he said, I don't believe in Jesus, 
But if I did, if I did, I'd want to be like you and the other students here. And I asked, what do, you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? He said, if I believe in the God you believe in, the God you teach on, I would want to have the life you have. I'd want to, I know why I'd love people the way you love people. You know, because something tremendous has happened in your life. I see it. And, you know, for me, that was a profound moment. It was profound that he left college, still not a Christian. Um, he went to a different city for a job. But I knew that we had done a good job or our job in representing and, and being followers of Christ well. That he saw a transform life by the Holy Spirit that we had. And that if he became a Christian, he too would live out the Great Commission. He would love people the way we loved people. That we were making disciples who make disciples. And it was profound for me to see that even though this person did not become a Christian, they knew what the Great Commission was all about. And they were ready to live it out the moment they did. And you know, what's really cool to me is recently I heard from another friend that this student, where he's now in the new city, has just started visiting another church. You know, to me, the work of the Holy Spirit in his life is not even done yet. You know, I'll end with this. You know, if you're not a Christian here, um, know that this, this life, this purposeful transformed life is available to you. My prayer is you'd experience that power in your life, that you would experience it through someone here in this church about what a life transformed by the gospel ought to be. And if you are a Christian, you know, my, my question for you is, is, have you experienced that transformation? You know, how has the gospel shaped and developed your story? That the gospel is the power that changes us, that brings us life, that drives the great commission, that drives us to represent Christ well in our world. You know, I'll invite the worship team up and we'll, we'll sing together. But my prayer is you would reflect on the gospel today, that you would worship well the Jesus, the God who has brought you life. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the life you've given us, for the purpose you've called us to, for the people around us and these opportunities to, um, to share your love with them. You know, for Paul, I'm sure at the moment he had no idea that his work there, staying where he was, would affect all of Asia. That all people would hear the gospel by not through him, but through people who he spoke with. Lord, I pray you would just teach us to take one step forward, knowing that you will multiply our work beyond what we can see and we can imagine. Would you be with us here? Would you remind us of your gospel and your power and your grace for us today? In your name we pray. Amen.